welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow, and we are here live at ID Week 2022. It's Saturday, so we're not quite done with the conference, but I have our Febrile correspondence today um, that we're just going to share some pearls and reflections from being here at ID Week 2022. And as a reminder, this is not comprehensive and it's totally biased by the things that we find interesting. Um, So I will say my personal biases are I went to a lot of pediatric sessions and transplant sessions, but I will introduce our first correspondent. Can you tell everyone about yourself? Hi, yes. My name is Annie Jacobs and I'm a third year resident at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, My bias is I loved going to the case-based sessions, and um, I have a particular interest in health disparities, public health, and global health. Love it. Okay, I'll throw it over to Shilpa. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Shilpa. I'm an ID fellow at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. I um, was primarily attending sessions related to HIV, viral hepatitis, and some general inpatient ID. Hi, Sarah. It's so great to be back on the show. I'm uh, Jonathan Ryder. I am at University of Nebraska Medical Center, and I am doing a third-year research fellowship in antimicrobial stewardship and am an instructor uh, up in Omaha, Nebraska. And so I'm so excited that we're doing this uh, show again this year. And as I've already hinted at, I am a stewie, and so I am going to be talking about stewardship, and I also love all things staphbacteremia. I love it. I just got one of those Stewie tattoos that have been floating around. I'm pretty excited. As everyone's favorite culture podcast, though, we're going to do our usual and talk about a little piece of culture. But we're going to talk about D.C. because we're here in Washington, D.C. I usually don't get to contribute to the culture talks, but I just wanted to give a shout out to all the awesome food that's been here. I have had Malaysian and Thai and Indian and Mexican food since I've been here, um, and it has been awesome. Uh, What about you, Eddie? Yeah, definitely going to jump on the food train (laughs) because otherwise it would just be infectious disease. Um, I went to Zaytania while I was here and had some of the best cauliflower I've ever had in my life. I am going to pivot and make a plug for this. It's not particularly creative, but I feel like I'd be remiss in D.C. not to uh, make a nod to the National Mall. Um, My fellowship class had a really, really lovely walk out in the beautiful fall weather, and I would highly recommend That's so awesome. So I um, am going to give a plug to the arts here and go with The Mold, uh, the musical, <laughs> which is uh, showing here. I'm going to attend tonight, so I don't know, but we're going to see if uh, Alexander Fleming or Alexander Hamilton is uh, the better musical here. So Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have to say, I love walking around D.C., especially at night when all the monuments are lit up. And the weather, of course, has been wonderful. Um, All right. So we're going to start by just mentioning some of the pre-conference workshops, which for those who are here, I think the, the best ones to really shout out, especially for trainees, is Fellows Day. And Annie, I think you went to the Adult Fellows Day, right? That's correct. What did you think? Did you like it? It was awesome. I just love seeing all the cases presented, um, stuff that I haven't seen as a resident, but hopefully I'll get to see throughout my training uh, during fellowship. Yeah, 
Cool. What about you, Shelby? You went to that too, right? I totally agree. Um, I will admit I was a little bit puzzled that um, the format was going to be cases, but it was so awesome because everybody sat down and the instant the first social history was presented, there were like gasps around the room um, and there was just such a shared uh, like just delight uh, in going through this exercise together. One interesting tidbit I learned from the first presented case is that histoplasmosis is a potential cause of a false negative cryptococcal antigen in the serum. Um, which I bring up because I feel like you're the queen of fungal biomarkers. Um, but uh, I thought that was like a great uh, teaching point for knowing that our, our patients can have as many co-infections as they please. Yeah, especially at, fel- at Fellows Day, just like being there, you know something's going to be funky. <laughs> I loved when they were presenting how their social history was like four times longer than the past <laughs> medical and the HPI. That's how I knew I was at an ID conference. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and I went to the Pediatric Fellows Day one, which is right next door, and maybe one day they'll not plan them at the same time because you have to pick one if you're bed peeps. But there was a case of a, a patient who was very, very unwell and needed ECMO and ultimately had um, like true obstruction from a boatload of ascaris worms, and they put up a picture on the screen, and of course there were many of the gasps, just like um, at the other cases that I've been to. The other thing that I was going to put a plug for is um, Katrina Bird did a case of syphilis in an adolescent that the panel forgot to mention, and um, I will quote Buddy Creech, who said, I didn't say syphilis because I'm a pediatrician, um, just to tease him a little bit, but I think uh, it was just like a really uh, fascinating case that it just doesn't come up as much on the Pete side, and it's so important to remember for our uh, teenage patients. Um, and Jonathan, what did you do for your sort of pre-meeting workshop? Yeah, I went to the best practices for antimicrobial stewardship practice session on Tuesday. And just a wonderful uh, overview of a lot of really interesting stewardship topics. I'm just going to dive into a couple of them here. One of which was uh, one of my favorite types of sessions, which is a pro-con debate. And this was about fluoroquinolone prophylaxis in stem cell transplant situations. And uh, Sam Aiken and Gadi Hadar went uh, back and forth on this topic, really just deep dive going back into the literature from the 1950s and the 1960s, just trying to figure out, you know, what's the risk benefit? How, how do these prophylaxis regimens really change our care and whether how, how long we can actually continue these going forward? And there's not always a lot of great answers to some of these. But if you're interested in this, I would highly recommend uh, that session. I learned a lot there. The other one that I really enjoyed was uh, labs and cultures that we do for no good reason, uh, one of which focused on um, clinical uh, testing. And there was, a, there was a great quote, and it said, clinically non-indicated diagnostic tests are fundamentally ordered due to a miscalculation of the therapeutic impact versus the collateral damage of a test. And so we run into the situation where there's over-testing, which leads to over-treatment, which leads to antibiotic resistance, adverse events, diagnostic uncertainty, and then ultimately healthcare waste. And so this was a really good session, um, kind of discussing that from a stewardship perspective in regard to urine cultures, the urine strep pneumo antigen that we often use, and procalcitonin within uh, uh, the context of COVID-19, tend to be kind of overused and, and poorly interpreted. 
And then also we heard from the lab perspective on some tests that we are, I shouldn't say we order, it was actually framed within the context that others order and that we have to interpret. Um, and things that should not really be done, such as the HSV IgM test, which is not very helpful. And actually it was discussed how that was discontinued in, in, the, in the lab um, that was presenting. And then also doing a syphilis VDRL um, CSF test without doing a syphilis serology. So talking about syphilis again, um, always an important topic. And then I actually learned that a caucus serology is really only supportive, that you need to make the diagnosis based on imaging and, and the classification of the lesion. And so you can have negative caucus serology and still have caucus. something we don't always see very often, but something to keep in mind. So I learned a ton from that session and uh, encourage it for all the Stewies out there. Love it. Well, we're going to sort of just go around and randomly talk about sessions that we went to and some of the pearls that we picked up. Um, maybe I'll start off with Shilpa and then we'll just kind of go around. Sure. I will um, echo Jonathan's vote for the pro-con debates. I love those as well. And I wanted to bring up one I attended uh, entitled HIV Squabbles. Um, there were two debates, one around, the one, the, I guess the one that, all, that really stuck with me uh, was a discussion around use of long-acting cabotegravir rilpivirine um, in individuals with HIV with vir active viremia um, and potentially barriers to adherence with oral ART. Um, I think this is something that many of us have been excited about, um, especially with early data showing success with this strategy. But there was an interesting debate in which the audience was polled, and with a, an admittedly small margin, uh, the group was generally in favor of this approach. Uh, but then Dr. Barris from Nebraska um, gave, uh, provided some very, very thought-provoking points, including one that really stuck which, with me, which is that the cabotegravir tail uh, which I've heard about, I know, I know is a consideration. It lasts for three to four years. Uh, so the time period in which somebody might be in that uh, zone of uh, resistance, um, potentially developing integrase inhibitor resistance or transmitting is, uh, I think, much more uh, extended in time than I had realized. And I think I was not the only person that was struck by that uh, as the audience kind of flipped in our second vote. <laughs> Yeah, I will also plug the pro-con debates. And I think one of the best PED sessions is always mano a mano. And they, they always pick three and compare and contrast. Uh, so I was just going to mention the three. There was antiviral treatment of infants with isolated sensory neural hearing loss and congenital CMV. Because there's an interesting debate because some people consider those children asymptomatic. Um, but the question of whether or not treating them is beneficial in the long run. And we actually did a, a congenital CMV episode not too long ago, I think it was number 37, that we talked a little bit about this and how people have particularly between European and American guidelines, slightly uh, different approaches. Uh, the second one was antiviral therapy and whether it's effective for EBV prevention um, with pediatric PTLD. And I, I think the big takeaway is that there is an upcoming EBV PTLD consensus statement that's coming out, um, which I'm looking forward to reading because I uh, did EBV for my fellowship project. 
And then the last one was whether or not treating group A strep pharyngitis actually requires 10 days of antibiotics. And they dug a little bit into some of the old literature and how it, it kind of was a historical 10-day suggestion that just kind of kept getting copy forwarded in the future. So um, I, I would say that one probably had the crowd crowd split the most towards uh, not treating for 10 days. And then the last thing I wanted to say is that one of the quotes from that session was that Zithro is garbage. And I, uh, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed that. <laughs> Jonathan, what about you? What's the session that you went to? Yeah, so I went to the Staph aureus bacteremia controversy session, which had several um, really unique topics. The first one was regarding what to do in persistent MSSA bacteremia, in which, you know, we know persistent bacteremia is associated with um, worse outcomes in Staph aureus bacteremia, in particular after about two days. Um, so it doesn't take very long before you fall into this um, area. And, you know, sort of as an editorial aside, there's this sort of, there's sort of two different paradigms in what to do with these situations. You know, is this an issue of source control? Or is this an issue of we need better combination uh, therapies? And the source control question was uh, brought up, but not really uh, dived into deeply. But the question is, what uh, you know, synergistic combination antibiotic therapies may we need to look at more in the future? And so the, the kind of the popular one um, that's being discussed right now is cefazolin with ertapenem. And so there's some early data showing possible benefit and some anecdotal cases uh, showing rapid um, cessation of bacteremia at that point in time. So I'm hoping that we get more data on this in the future to see if maybe this combination therapy will eventually um, prove beneficial. The next one is one that is often discussed as well, which is should DAPTO plus ceftaroline become the standard of care for MRSA bacteremia? So Daptaroline's been used for refractory cases, and the question basically is, when has it become our default option uh, in MRSA bacteremia? And the, the final answer of the, of the session was basically, no, it's not there yet. Um, the trials need a little bit of uh, further development, and we need more data. Um, but there are situations in which it, it may be beneficial. You'll see out there a nice uh, kind of pro-con chart um, floating around that was from the session, and I would uh, encourage people to listen to it if interested in that topic. And the last one during that session was on kind of non-standard therapies. There was discussion on oral antibiotics in complicated staph bacteremia. I thought it was kind of interesting. They said it was un, uh, uncontroversial that that in uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia, the oral agents should be done. And um, I, I sort of was a little surprised at that, but there is um, data about the Sabato trial that's being presented here, ID Week, that I think is definitely moving us in, the, in that direction. Other things talked about were long-acting glycopeptides, in which the DOTS trial is ongoing and will help provide more information there. And then lastly, a combination that I was not very familiar with, which is DAPTO plus trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. There's some nice in vitro data, but not a whole lot of clinical data about that combination yet. I will totally agree with you that I was surprised by the statement around uh, oral therapy for uncomplicated staph bacteremia being uncontroversial. And my first thought was actually, I sort of, 
I sort of feel, at least where I train, uh, the very term uncomplicated staph bacteremia is itself a controversy. Um, so that was very interesting um, perspective. One of the sessions that I went to that I just thought was so useful was the board review session on Tuesday earlier this week. Um, so many interesting tidbits, but one that got a big gasp from the audience, including myself, was um, this fact that HSV encephalitis can actually trigger autoimmune encephalitis, including NMDA encephalitis. I think that was a big shock to everyone in the audience, um, including myself. Um, well, I guess I'll go off of the like CNS theme. I know Jonathan and I went to the session, I think they called it Brain Teasers, which is a great name, but challenging cases and sort of this post-neurosurgery scenarios. And there was a lot of discussion on how do you differentiate chemical from infectious meningitis with healthcare-associated ventriculitis meningitis, which... Uh, I thought was very valuable because I think sometimes it is tough to interpret our CSF results, particularly if there is bleeding. I think something that is interesting is there is a lot of conversation about CSF lactate, which I have certainly seen when I've read about cases like this, but I actually have never used that in clinical practice. I was curious if you guys have ever been able to send CSF lactate or use it before. You know, I I haven't done it, Sarah. Yeah. Not once. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> yeah. And I think they, they even mentioned one of the papers saying that at best, maybe 50% of the time people can even send or I guess either able to or chose to send that test. So quite interesting. And then, of course, anytime there's a video shown at ID Week, you know it's going to be good. And they, <laughs> Jonathan, do you remember? The, I they, do. Um, <laughs> they were essentially sucking out some uh, purulent material and framed it as, look, we probably couldn't have treated this with IV antibiotics, which is, you know, source controls number one, uh, like usual. But I always enjoy a good video at ID Week. I can give a shout out for the uh practice changing clinical trials talk. This one, I thought it was really interesting. There was some really, really great uh, coverage of important trials from the past year. And my first reflection was that I think the internet and Twitter have really changed how we uh, consume um, updates in the literature and the rapidity with which they sort of come to us and the analysis and discussion around them sort of reaches us is, I think, much different uh, than it used to be. But one trial, even in all of my perusing that I had not come across, um, was the MinMon trial, uh, which looked at a minimal monitoring study um, in hepatitis C treatment. It's essentially just a, a strategy in which uh, after hep C diagnosis, uh, the individual is given their 12 weeks of pills and then told to come back in 24 weeks uh, to confirm SVR, and 95% uh, do achieve it. And it's actually led to a, a practice update um, from the IDSA and AASLD um, in which this is a recommended strategy for those without cirrhosis or other complicating factors. Um, and they really, really emphasized in this discussion um, kind of rapid initiation and eliminating barriers to treatment, um, which is definitely not something I've necessarily seen like permeating practice as I've seen it, but makes me feel very motivated to, to advocate for early and low, low stress treatment. I'll uh, comment on the uh, endemic fungi uh, lecture, and I I know Sarah's got some talking points on this as well, but um, I always love talks by uh, Andre Speck from uh, WashU and uh, his kind of analysis on updates or or lack thereof, and 
You know, it's um, it's really just kind of concerning uh, in, a, in a jam-packed full room of interested clinicians how little data has really been generated in this area, uh, especially regarding treatment. And uh, for example, he said, okay, what, what have we learned about blasto? And it was basically an empty slide. And then we moved on to the next topic. And so uh, I'll just uh, echo his call for other trainees that are interested in fungi to really dive into this because pretty much any update would be uh, featured here at ID Week in the future. So, um, uh, yeah, so Sarah, I know you have some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I, uh, I wrote down a couple things. I wrote uh, Gospel by Andre for um, Histo, Itra should be first line therapy, Posa, Isa, a second line, and third line is Fluke and Vori. Um, and I wrote a note to myself to go look a little bit more at the use of single high-dose um, liposomal, ambosome, sort of thinking about disseminated histo. The other thing that stuck with me, and I can't remember if I posted the slide on Twitter, and if I didn't, I will post it later, but Janice Blair mentioned in sort of the review about how the coccidioides antibody response is to fungal chitinase, and that if it is positive, it is only during fungal replication. So any positive antibody should imply fungal replication and activity and that it would eventually become negative. But I also wrote the same thing down about like calling out to fellows and young faculty to um, investigate these questions. And I think the other thing that came up was, you know, scenarios where we often don't stop treatment. And um, we specifically mentioned coxie meningitis is one that people don't tend to feel comfortable stopping therapy ever. And then um, for vertebral osteomyelitis with coxie, I, I think there's probably some um, disagreement, but a lot of people would not stop therapy at any point. So I thought those were all very useful pearls. Along the fungal theme, I really liked the um, emerging endemic mycosis talk from Dr. Schwartz. Um, and I guess coming back to issues with with uh, fungal markers, um, he uh, had a discussion of emergomycosis, uh, which I learned has um, both histopathologic um, similarity as well as antigen cross-reactivity with histoplasma. Um, and although it's uh, an organism I've heard of in South Africa, which is the largest cluster. Um, there have been, I learned from his talk, there have been seven cases in the U.S. in a more um, kind of mixed host population, including transplant recipients. Um, so maybe something to look out for. That idea of um, these pathogens sort of finding new locations um, was definitely a theme in the tropical medicine cases, which was amazing. There was a case of filariasis that came from uh, South and Central America, and that was fascinating. You know, in the textbooks, you always learn that's an African disease. And so um, seeing that in new settings was definitely eye-opening for me. Yeah, I love the case-based ones. I think the other theme that is in like multiple sessions is how histo is everywhere and you should just assume that it's everywhere. <laughs> I think most of us that are here at IDW probably know that, but um, I don't know that everyone else always thinks that because it's tested so aggressively on standardized tests. Another session I went to was the session on endocarditis and bloodstream infections. Um, there was an excellent presentation there about um, the need for screening colonoscopies in patients with pyogenic liver abscesses and a increase in the amount of colon malignancies that they were finding in these patients, um, potentially practice changing. And I thought that was an excellent presentation. 
I saw that floating around on the on the Twitter sphere, and it um, continues to amaze me the more things that we see in the infectious disease world that are potentially associated with colorectal malignancy. I went to a bunch of other like hot topics in Pete's ID and and challenging uh, Pete's ID cases. I will say one theme is there's a lot of discussion on plasma metagenomics and how can we use it? Who should we use it? Um, with. And I will give a plug that the next episode after this, we are specifically talking about molecular tools, like uh, we're calling it hide and seek a primer, <laughs> um, but to talk about PCR and, and some of these other more advanced tests like the metagenomic sequencing. Um, so I'm excited to get that released. And then I wanted to give a couple, maybe one or two shout outs. One, if anyone remembers, there was a case in the pediatric session that had CSF eosinophilia, and I would just like to plug that I remember it as ABG, as the common bugs, which are angiostrongylus, balus ascaris, and nathostoma, and everyone thought it was going to be balus ascaris, I think, from the audience response, and it turned out to be angiostrongylus, so that was pretty cool. I hope that I can catch up on some of the myth-busting ones. I did hear that for the hot topics in antimicrobial stewardship, there was a talk on intra-abdominal infections and when and if we should be treating Canada and enterococcus. Um, so thanks to Melissa, I heard there was a shout out to uh, our old febrile episode for that. I wanted to ask you guys, we were finally here in person. Last year we reflected on the fact that it, uh, you know, we can do these conferences virtually, but they have drawbacks. Um, what do you guys think? You know, uh, when we talked about this last year, we talked about, you know, we don't have to travel, decreased cost expenditures uh, and uh, being home in our PJs, which I think um, certainly comes with all of its advantages. I will just say that I am completely exhausted at this point in time <laughs> in the week, but I am also just fully invigorated by being able to see and meet so many new colleagues, help collaborate with them. Um, just people that I've been meeting on Zoom meetings for the last two years that I've finally got to meet and, and socialize with. And it just brings a whole new component to a meeting that I think is so essential. Um, the, the content is still absolutely wonderful through the sessions, but there's so much more to ID Week that I had no idea I was missing out on. I totally agree. Um, and I would add to that, I think the experience of talking outside of the sessions um, with ID clinicians who practice um, in a variety of settings and a variety of geographic locations has really, really just um, been been humbling to me um, to hear about um, sort of the variety of ways that ID is practiced and um, some of the, I think, the, the various barriers to care that, that many ID physicians are, are facing in their practices and just all the different ways that sort of make a difference in this field. Um, and that has been um, sort of personally very inspirational to me. I'll echo that being a resident that is in the process of applying to a fellowship right now, um, I have met just so many people that are so excited to recruit <laughs> me to this very small workforce. And the amount of career advice um, and sort of help in guiding, you know, my next steps into this career has been invaluable and something that I wasn't able to get online uh, last year at the virtual. Yeah, I... I came to ID Week as a resident and feel like it was very impactful to, to meet people, but also um, just to hear all the sessions. It's very inspiring to hear like a huge variety of different talks. 
Um, I also would like to plug that there was an ID tweet up, so a lot of people came and said hi. And I would like to totally fangirl and talk about this is the closest that I will ever be to Dr. Fauci. And I took like a thousand photos. <laughs> So um, hopefully everyone else also got the pleasure of hearing Dr. Fauci's um, mini chat uh, with uh, Dan McQuillan. But I was super excited to, to see the, the master, everyone's favorite ID doctor. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we want to thank everyone for listening. I want to give a special thank you to everyone who's come up to me at ID Week and said hello or um, just sort of advocated and said that this is a, a good resource for uh, learners and, and people who are interested in ID. Uh, if you have any suggestions or questions, please reach out. Um, you can always email me. I did give out all of my lanyards, uh, but I do have lanyards still available on the website, and I did put a coupon code for ID Week, so I'll make sure that we um, remind everyone. So if you didn't have a chance to catch me running around with um, lanyards, you can grab your own. Um, but yeah, so thank you all for coming and joining for this episode. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> all right, stay safe, and we'll see you next time.